0: Well, this morning, it is a delight to welcome back to the pulpit of Christ Church, a very dear friend. I was going to say an old friend, but he's not that old, Uh, just a dear friend. Uh, The Reverend Ralph Robron has been a a minister of the Church of Jesus Christ under the auspices of the Reformed Church of America for 41 years, which means he started when he was one years old, just one (laughs) years old. For 13 and a half years, Ralph was the pastor of uh, pastoral care here at Christ Church of Oakbrook. It would be impossible, I think, to even count the number of holy moments, uh, the uh, tender circumstances into which Ralph lovingly came and walked alongside of people and was the presence of Jesus for them in a very powerful, powerful way. His teaching and preaching ministry. Uh, His just general good humor and spirit have touched the lives of so many of us in this congregation and beyond this congregation. In recent years, he's been the senior pastor of the uh, Second Reformed Church in Kalamazoo, uh, Michigan, uh, from which he has also just recently retired. And he and Lenore are now uh, making their home uh, alongside the lake, enjoying leisurely boat rides, reading, spending time with their family and their uh, two marvelous, uh, four marvelous grandchildren. Lenore is out here today. I know she has pictures if you ask her. Uh, She'd be delighted to share them uh, with you. Uh, Ralph, for those who do not know, uh, is a graduate of Hope College and of Western Theological Seminary in Holland, and he continues to play a leadership role as a part-time pastor of preaching and congregational care at the Standale Reformed Church in Grand Rapids where he is called to assist that congregation in trying to reach new levels of faithfulness in pursuing the vision and the mission that God has given us. Ralph has taught us a lot about a vision of God and about the mission he has given us as his servants in the world. I hope you will join me in giving a very warm welcome back to this very special friend.
1: Thank you again. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here and... Certainly, I'm very grateful for this opportunity again. It's wonderful to come back to places where we have been and to see how God uh, works. And um, my life now has come kind of full circle. What's interesting in the church that I'm serving right now, I'm serving alongside a young woman. She's 29 years old. She's... uh, the pastor of the church or one of the pastors in the church and I baptized her 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, I married her parents and then to see how God has worked in her life, called her to ministry and now to be able to work alongside of her. That's just a delightful delightful kind of thing. So it, it's it's wonderful to be able to live long enough and old enough to be able to see some of that. I also am grateful for what I see in this place. Um, certainly the configuration and, uh, of this front part of the sanctuary and the windows. Uh, are, it's, it's a powerful expression, I think, of uh, seeking to honor God. And so you need to be commended for that. I also commented in the first service that I am intrigued by this title of this summer lights thing. Uh, some of us have more light to radiate than others. And um, so these bright lights are, are wonderful off my beautiful head, of course. <laughs> I have no jokes to tell this morning because Peter Semine, my colleague of several years ago, told all the jokes. So I'll get right to what I'm going to do this morning. But thank you very much for your warm embrace and for the privilege that was ours in being able to minister among you. Um, Our experience just in the last few days again uh, reminded me of the importance of the subject that I am going to speak about. My summer has been rather unusual in that God has linked my life with Uh, several people who have walked through some very difficult places. And just yesterday, uh, Pastor Dan, he announced the the death of Dorothy MacDonald. Dr. Larry and Dorothy MacDonald have been longtime members of this church, and Dr. McDonald died just three months ago. And now his wife, Dorothy, died. And I was with them through many experiences in in their lives. Here, they walked through very difficult places. Their thirty-some-year-old daughter uh, died. Very successful lawyer in Alabama. Um, just prior to that time, she gave birth to a special needs child, and uh, that child needed to be cared for. And so the McDonalds took that child into their home for a period of time. And then the McDonald's experienced a huge house fire in Elmhurst, lost a good deal of their home, their possessions. And um, over and over again, we pose the question of where is God in those hurtful times? And that's the question that I seek to address this morning. I invite you to share God's word with me. As we read it from two passages in the book of Hebrews, first of all, and then from the book of Psalms. Reading from Hebrews chapter 2, at verse 14, let us hear the word of God. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that is Christ, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted or tested. And then from the fourth chapter at verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then, from the book of Psalms, Psalm 31, at verse 1. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those things. I'm sorry, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. For I hear the slander of many. There is terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me. In your unfailing love. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sherry asked, But why the children, Uncle Ralph? Why do children die and suffer? After all, they are innocent. They haven't hurt anybody. She had given birth to twins. One was normal, healthy. Megan was cerebral palsy. And today, Megan is about 50 pounds. She still needs to be held and carried and has no speech. She's a blessing to many people, but still the question why. And Lewis asked... Why do the good die young when he and I were traveling from a place where he had been? I picked him up. We were going to his home. His sister had just been killed in an automobile accident. She was 21 years old, wonderfully intelligent and wonderfully social. Why do the good die young? And countless numbers of people have asked, Where is God when it hurts? Hurts so badly that, as Paul Young describes in his best-selling novel, The Shack, a great sadness drapes itself around one's being like some invisible but almost, almost tangibly heavy quilt The weight of its presence dulls the eyes and stoops the shoulders. Even one's efforts to shake it off are exhausting as though one's arms are sewn into its bleak folds of despair and that one somehow becomes part of it, trudging daily through the murky despondency that sucks the color out of everything. No thinking Christian can avoid the questions or even the issue of God's silence and inactivity in the face of human suffering. On some days, perhaps many days, we may find both belief in God and prayer to be impossible. And as I said earlier, a few moments ago, I have walked with people again in recent days, and I've walked with people throughout my ministry. Many of you, when I look out over this audience, I see people that I stood alongside, and we prayed together, and we buried your loved ones, and all of the hurt and pain that comes with those unexpected happenings, those times when the emotional jolt of evil and sickness and destruction and injustice leave us emotionally and intellectually and spiritually numb. Those times. Why do pain and suffering exist? And because they exist, how do I have faith in God or even begin to think about praying to Him? As a backdrop to these questions and as part of the broad picture, the bigger canvas. We need to go back to an old story where life was once good all the time. Oh, I know some of you have heard that story and some of you would like to check out now because it's not the story that we think sort of fits where we are. We've heard it perhaps before. We don't like to think that in a sophisticated culture this old story has any meaning or relevance to us. I only want to hear pleasant things. I came to Christ Church this morning because it's a summer Sunday and maybe I can laugh a bit or maybe I can at least experience some warmth and now you're going to speak about something very difficult. Yes? In this story where life was once good all the time, God's creatures, both angels and humans, were created with the ability and the freedom to enjoy and to glorify God, or they were given the freedom to rebel. They could sin against God. They could try to find their own way. And the Bible tells us that Satan and his demons, his cohorts, chose to rebel as did men and women. And the result of that rebellion has been pain and hurt and what we commonly call as evil. We are the children of our first parents, whether we like it or not, and we must live in a world that's devastated by sin, by evil. And we must set our minds to learning to live with evil. And when I use the term evil, I'm referring to all of the brokenness, all of the hurt, all of the pain that results from our separation from God. At a recent seminar I attended, the speaker said that if we did not have the stories of humankind's sin and rebellion in the Bible that follows Genesis 3, and continue all the way through Revelation 19, the Bible would be nothing more than a pamphlet. That's a profound statement because the Bible is all about human rebellion and God's desire to transform that. The reality of humankind's sin and the resulting brokenness is evident all about us. And if this morning you came out of some brokenness in your life, some question like, where is God when it hurts, then be assured of my prayers and be assured of the prayers and the support and the help of this congregation as you walk through the deep valleys of despair and doubt. Now, after 40-plus years of ministry, I have found that some Christians like to believe that God always turns evil into good. I think that to assume God allows bad things to happen so that we can experience a greater good is to deny the basic reality of sin and its evil nature and consequences. When we say or when we think that good will always be the outcome of any bad happening, we are saying, really, that evil does not exist. Yes, God can, and God sometimes does, bring good results out of bad happenings. But no one, no one would choose to let bad things happen so that these good things would result. And I suggest to you this morning, this is why persons are not comforted by well-meaning folk who tell them, someday you will understand. The facts are that God does not make evil into good. Evil remains evil no matter how much good God may eventually be pleased to reveal. And then there are other Christians who say that we ought to just praise the Lord, whatever happens. Well, let me remind you this morning, and let me say it as clearly as possible, that there is too much agony in the Garden of Gethsemane where the Lord Jesus prayed to believe that Jesus was just praising the Lord. Luke in his gospel tells us that Jesus was in great anguish and sweat profusely, even to the point of sweating blood. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus cried out of the agony of his soul. Mark tells us that Jesus called upon friends who were not able to assist him. And Luke also tells us that only angels could come to minister to the deepest needs of Jesus. None, none of the New Testament writers make Jesus a superhero. And if our Lord could be distressed, if our Lord could cry, if our Lord could be deeply anguished, then why is it that we Christians continue to pretend that somehow it is good for bad things to happen? So what does all of this have to have to do with our living faithfully? What does all of this have to do with our even attempting to live as God would have us to live and pray to him and cry to him? Let me suggest three things to you this morning. I believe that in order to live faithfully before God when the question is, where is God when it hurts? We need to have a greater sense of honesty. We can begin to live faithfully when we are honest with our doubts and with our questions and with our fears. I have been convinced, or I am convinced, that one of the reasons the novel The Shack has been so popular is because it allows us to see God in a different way. I've read the novel three times. It took me that long to figure it out. I didn't like it at first. There a lot of people that don't like it. The second time I read it, I said, I think I'm trying, I, I, I think I'm understanding. But then the third time as I've been reading it, I've become aware of the fact that God here in that novel is pictured in a very different way. And for many of us, Even those of us who have been part of the church for a long time, we've grown up thinking that God is kind of angry. He's out to get us. He's looking over our shoulder. He's judgmental. He's ready to strike at a moment's notice. And many of the questions that Mac, the main character in the novel, raises really are our questions. And the truth is, my friends, that God is not harmed by our questions. He is not harmed by our doubts. And furthermore, we must admit that from our point of view, much if not most of all human suffering seems meaningless. And all of our thinking about it, all of our conjecturing about it, get in the way of of the fact that we simply do not know why suffering exists. What we know is that it hurts. What we know is that it hurts. And we must stop trying to be God and rather admit that we are creatures who cry. Wonder Woman and Superman are creatures of our fantasies. And honesty does not require that we thank God for hurt. To do so, I believe, is to make God into a sadistic kind of being. And there is no place in Scripture that tells us that God enjoys suffering or he enjoys the consequences of evil because it was not in God's plan. Did Jesus lack victorious faith? When, as the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus offered up prayers and petitions and loud cries and tears? I think not. Jesus was versed in the Psalms. He was educated in the Psalms. When he went to the synagogue and to the temple, he sang the Psalms. And when he did so... He came on those cries of anguish from David and the other psalmists. Their admitting their grief, their pain, their sorrow, their affliction... Hear again the words that I read just a few moments ago from Psalm 31. I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction. You knew the anguish of my soul. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones. Cry and are weak. That's honesty. And we need not to pretend to enjoy pain or sorrow in order to be found faithful. Secondly, we need community. Community. We do not live isolated lives, some island, someplace. God made us for community. We need other people. And it is sin, I believe. It is vanity. It is godless egoism that have convinced us that it's just me and God when we walk through difficult times. When we stop pretending with ourselves, when we stop pretending with one another, when we stop pretending with God, then true, faithful living comes forth. And when it hurts too much, I need you, I need you to pray for me. I need you to come alongside of me. Pastor Dan has just talked about the fact that this is now the time in the life of this congregation where you are seeking to to become part of these connecting groups. It could be a Bible study. It could be other kind of support group. It could be any kind of gathering where people come together to share something of their mind, their heart, their soul, their spirit. And as a result, your life is encouraged. Your life is changed. Your life is transformed. It happens again and again and again, my friends. I will never forget the first grief support group we established here during my ministry. It was early on. I came across many people who were in grief, had suffered grief. And so we started this first gr- grief group, and I'll never forget it. There were some people who had experienced their grief five years before, ten years before, fifteen years before. And many of them said, I have never been able to tell my story. This is the first time. My friends, it need not be that way. So I encourage you, whatever your place or station in life here, that you find a place in this church through small group ministry and find a connection. Tell your story. Be prayed for. Be loved. Be encouraged and be transformed. Thirdly, I believe that in order to live faithfully, we need to let go of the why questions. When we have walked through pain and hurt and suffering, there comes a time by the grace of God when we are led from asking why to the more appropriate question that Phil Yancey raises in one of his books, Where is God When It Hurts? And there is an answer to that question, and the answer to that question is certain, and the answer to the question of where is God when it hurts is this, God is on the cross taking to himself in Jesus Christ the pain, the agony, the terror of all of the suffering of the whole universe. Can you understand that? Can I understand it? Can I explain it? Not in any way whatsoever, but I believe it. That God is on the cross taking to himself in Christ all of the pain, all of your agony, all of your terror, all of your anguish in the suffering of Jesus. And again, I will say I've been intrigued by the popularity of the novel The Shack because it raises questions that are answered in the Scripture, but I guess many of us have not ever seen it described in this way. Why has it sold millions of copies? Why are people reading it who have never read anything like it before? I was in the hospital the other day, carried the book. I was waiting for someone. Someone said to me, I'm not a believer, but I understand that that book is very important. Should I be reading it? I said, yes. What questions does it raise that has caught the attention of millions of readers? Here's my answer to the question. I believe that the shack deals with the question, how far is God willing to reach into our pain? How far is God willing to reach into our pain? And the answer is this, that God enters our world in all of our pain to win us out of the places where we are stuck. Jesus, who we believe is the exact representation of the Father, calls us to live inside of God's love. So that when we ask, how can God allow this thing, whatever this thing is in my life, God does not respond with a maxim. He does not respond with a concept. He does not respond with some kind of long theological answer, but rather he responds with a relationship of deep and powerful identity with us and with our suffering. Someone has written, God has underwritten and carried to himself the incalculable suffering of the whole universe and the spectacle of God merely sitting above the earth, arranging things, watching with detached interest the suffering of his creatures, Measuring that suffering with delicate cosmic galvanometers and comparing it with equally sensitive readings on the good side is revolting. But I do not find this picture of God in the Bible. One thing seems to me self-evident, that every particle of suffering in the whole belongs to him as subject he underwrote the whole cost himself so that every time a widow cries or a person acts like a beast, God is there bearing it all. My friends, God does not watch us suffer from the security of a painless heaven where all is joy and bliss But rather, in Jesus, God has become the man of sorrows, the one who is acquainted with our grief. In Christ, God suffered alone, completely alone, so that you and I would never have to suffer alone. Christ's concern for us is not measured by how much our pain might be reduced if he really cared. Rather, his help, his sympathy, is better evaluated in light of how much agony he endured on our behalf. And since we are united with Christ, that's what the Scripture says, We are united with Christ. And since Christ is God, then when we suffer, God himself suffers. I close with this story that took place this summer. During the summer when one of her friends was tragically killed in a motor vehicle accident, one of the young women from this church, again one who I'd spent a long, many years with now. She's now a student at a university. Her daddy died when she was very young. She wrote me and said, the only thing that has given me comfort during this time of my friend's death has been remembering that while I was in Africa, And there was so much real pain around me. Everyone was singing the song, Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I am found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness Blessed be your name. When the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name. And blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. You give and take away You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Blessed be your name. May it be so. May the grace of our God be with each of you as this is God's word for us today.